uh, was Suella Bridgman, Home Secretary, right to call immigration an invasion. Good morning. It's great to have this opportunity of debating politics again. It's been quite a long time for me, so it's good to be back. Yeah. I'm glad to be here with my good friend, Rabbi Saunders. Uh, we've had different political views over the years, but we also agree on many, many things. Yeah. I think the answer to your question is that what we've learned, I think, in recent times particularly, is leaders of all kinds have a responsibility in terms of the language they use uh, with regard to what that might cause. And therefore, I think using inflammatory language, it may be popular, by the way, with some people using language like that, is extremely unhelpful. What we need is a tough immigration system, but a fair immigration system. One that ensures that people don't come here illegally because it's against the law. And anything that's against the law, including immigration, is simply wrong. But when people do come here, we treat people with humanity and compassion. At the moment, we frankly have neither. We're neither preventing illegal immigrants coming to this country, nor are we treating immigrants appropriately and sensitive when they arrive here. Uh, so Suella Braverman's language perhaps deflects attention from the real issues. Those are the real issues. And, you know, we as a community, as a Jewish community particularly, need to reflect very carefully how we look at immigration. Many of us would not be in this country if immigration had not been allowed uh, going back many, many uh, years. So, of course, we should be sensitive and compassionate. But equally, we should be tough uh, on enforcing the law, whatever the law is. Uh, and therefore, we do need to have a system which, as I say, is both tough and fair. Do so you think it's wrong for Australian Britain to... I, I think it's wrong for politicians and leaders to unnecessarily use inflammatory language, which divides people, which uh, incites people. It's not true leadership. What we need more than anything else in our society, in this country and around the world right now, is quality leadership. We lack it in every respect. And, it's, and, we, and yet we face amongst the biggest challenges we've ever faced. That's the dichotomy. Yeah. So good leadership in any walk of life, in politics, in business, in education, is actually uh, trying to unite people, not divide people, and certainly not inflame people and incite people. Yeah, well, that's sick. What, what do you think? How, first of all, can I just uh, say, as Ivan did, how... Uh, uh, pleased I'm to be here, of course, uh, I'm Oni Saunders, both uh, Conservative Councillor for Curzon Broughton Park in Salford uh, City Council, and now a freelance rabbi, having retired uh, as the rabbi of the High Council Synagogue, uh, former Jewish chaplain for the military. Um, I'm glad to be here with my good friend Ivan, of course, the former MP for the area in which we're sitting very south. Now, to come to, to the question... Um, I fairly agree with Ivan. I would probably put it in different words. Um, I think politically it was not the correct thing to use, not the correct phrase. I think Ivan said leaders have to be careful what they would say. So I think it politically it was a mistake uh, for the reasons that Ivan has said and also for, you know, per politically uh, it, it was silly to draw attention, you know, to, to, to herself in, in that way. It's the sort of thing perhaps you can say to a friend in the pub but not politically, you know, on TV and so on. Whether she's right about an invasion is a different story, right? It can be wrong to use the words. A lot of things you shouldn't say it doesn't mean they're not wrong. Uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, they're not right. Is, is it an invasion? To an extent it is, right? Because a lot of these people are not genuine refugees from places like Syria and Afghanistan where they're genuinely fleeing for their lives. Uh, a lot of them are from Albania, where there's absolutely no problem living there, they're, they're, they're economic migrants, a lot of them, not saying all of them, uh, and if a lot of them are coming over in these small boats, putting their lives at risk, and the lives of others, you could argue semantically that that is an invasion. But, yes, as Ivan said, politically, she should have had the news not to use those words. Sure. But also, the, the government's been in power for a long time. Yeah. If we have an immigration system out of control in chaos, it's their responsibility. So to sort of distance yourself from it is quite extraordinary. And I, I would say something else. As somebody who fought for the referendum result on Brexit to be respected, by the way, but didn't want us to leave. So if you remember, I've, I wanted us to stay, but once the people voted to leave, I fought in Parliament for that decision to respect it, be respected. What we were told by those who advocated Brexit is our immigration problems would come to an end. That's what we were told as a result of leaving the European Union. So this also exposes another flaw in that particular argument at the time, that we still have this problem because, look, Arnold, Rabbi Saunders is absolutely right. And there's a difference between asylum seekers fleeing persecution 
and tyranny, where this country should always be a safe haven, and economic migration. Okay, there's a big difference. But we also need some economic migrants to do the jobs that British people won't do, picking fruit, doing other things, you know, the basic jobs that many British people won't do. So we need to have an honest uh, debate about that. But the key for me is uh, legality. If we have laws and people are breaking them, whether they're British people or foreigners, we have to enforce those laws vigorously and fairly. And therefore, if people are coming here unlawfully and without any good reason, right, they need to be returned to their country of origin. Secondly, we have to be very careful about those individuals, perhaps a small number, who are a threat to our national security. So do we have system in, in, systems in place also to adequately make sure that some of those people who are coming to the country, illegally particularly, uh, we, have, we have proper security systems in place uh, to make sure that they're not, for example, a terrorist uh, threat. These are very, very challenging situations, and it reflects the nature of a modern world. We live in a global world, an interdependent world. We cannot isolate ourselves as a wonderful United Kingdom in splendid isolation from the rest of the world. Uh, but we need an immigration system which is tough, but which is fair, that the British people have confidence in. I'm afraid what has happened is one of the reasons we have a lot of anti-immigrant feeling is because the system is out of control. And the British people, quite rightly, do not believe uh, that we have uh, control of the system and therefore can protect the country uh, from any threats and any dangers that exist, but also can ensure fairness. You know, we've got a cost of living crisis. We've got scarce resources. So people are sympathetic to people flee. For example, Ukraine. I've not heard one British person complain about us taking in Ukrainian refugees. Okay? And, and I'm delighted with that. And that's how it should be, compassionate humanity. Uh, but we have to get that balance right. It's, it's the right balance where we do let people in, but not that we, we, Correct. That we have humanity to Correct. them. As a politician, it's easier, by the way, to make these great strident statements, you know, which whip people up. Much easier. You get more votes sometimes from it. That's not the point, no. As a rabbi, as a politician, as a business leader, you have a responsibility and a duty to be careful with the language that you Should use. Should there be any, conse any consequences for that? Um, that's up to the Prime Minister and the Chief Whip. It's not for a lowly councillor to advise the Prime Minister or the Conservative Chief Whip what to do with a senior Cabinet Minister. Uh, you know, whether it's a hanging offence, I, I, you know, I, I don't think so. Uh, there's been other things, of course, that Suella Braverman has uh, been involved in, not least the, uh, you know, what the, the story that she resigned for with the yeah. security leaks and breaches. Uh, but again, I'm not going to go into whether she should lose her job or not. That, that's really not a matter for me. Can, can I just take it slightly further? Um, let me lay my cards on the table. As I well knows, I also campaigned and voted against Brexit. Um, but like Ivan, once the vote you know, went in, in the favour of Brexit, uh, I supported it. And I think what happened in Parliament when you know, Parliament broke down. Um, it was a disgrace. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think we've got to respect it. But I do agree with Ivan um, that, you know, Brexit was supposed to fix this. And I think it will in the longer term. But at the moment, what we've done is we've, you know, we've, we've sort of upset people like Macron and the French and so on. And um, we really, you know, we, we really need their help. That, that I think that is a very... Uh, a big point that the French have to help us there. Uh, can I just sort of wearing my other skull cap as a rabbi just tell you a, um, something interesting? Do you know what, you know people talk of the point system for immigration uh, that, you know, people with more skills can come in. Do you know what was the first immigration point system uh, in history? Yeah, in the Torah, yeah. Noah's Ark. Yeah. Noah's Ark had strict immigration policy Two by two, the animals had to come in, and then more, they couldn't. But if they were a kosher animal, see, they got extra points, and you could get seven. <laughs> see, so that's the first immigration policy and point system, uh, which was the, said with the portion of the Torah that we read a couple of weeks ago. In this week's portion, we read of an absolute anti-immigration policy of the Sodomites who wouldn't allow any... Uh, visitor, even a visitor, let alone uh, an immigrant, uh, and anybody who did actually make his way or her way to the country could be killed or, or raped or whatever. Now that, of course, is um, that, that, that's totally wrong. But Noah's Ark was the first immigration policy with a points system, and it, it worked. I have to say I'm really surprised as an avid Manchester United supporter, Rabbi Saunders would want to mention anything to do with points at the moment. I'm delighted that he's raised it as a, a City fan. Uh, let's talk about points as often as we can. So do you think there should be consequences? Look, 
I think every time a politician says something wrong or does something wrong, these days the call is resign, resign, resign. I've never met anybody in a position of responsibility who hasn't made a mistake. Yeah. If you do things in life, you get things wrong. So I wouldn't always call for resignation. I think it's an easy thing to do. Whether a number of other things that Suella Braverman has done and believes in, it's cause for not to have that job. That's a different debate, OK. Yeah. Uh, but on this occasion, that in itself... Uh, no, I mean, at the end of the day, she has to be judged on her performance. Uh, these days, I think it's easy to witch-hunt people. I don't agree with her values, her principles, the things that she seems to stand for, being on the right wing of the Conservative Party. Um, but uh, let, let's focus on, on those type of issues and how she does the job, rather than if she put the odd word out of place. I think, obviously, you may say something that is so outrageous, so irresponsible, so reckless, yeah. like a mini-budget, for example, that tanks people's mortgages. That's a entirely different debate, OK? Yeah. So, but, but yeah, it's easy to say, resign, 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 resign. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, the British people will decide in an election, and the Prime Minister has to decide who he wants to sit around the table, and he will be judged significantly by those choices that he makes. Yeah, no, that's right. Let's move on to the next question. Was it right for Matt Hancock to be suspended as MP after saying he would join the TV show I'm a Celebrity? I, I think that when I saw it flash up on my phone that Matt Hancock had been suspended for this, I thought somebody was having a laugh. I really did think somebody was having a laugh. But there is a serious element to this. First of all, yes, of course he should be suspended because he should be focusing, concentrating on serving his constituents. Okay. But the other thing about this for the Conservative Party is this. I remember what it's like when a political party is heading out of power. They make really bad, big decisions, like the economy or other things go wrong for them. But also the little things that cause them to be a laughing stock becomes a real problem. Once a government loses its reputation for competence, it's in big trouble. When it also then becomes a bit of a joke, okay, it's even bigger trouble. So that's what, if I was Rishi Sunak, this is what would concern me about the story. Not really that, it's a bit of a silly story in a way, but it reinforces this notion that the Conservative Party has really completely lost the plot. You know, there was a lot of sympathy for this government. They had to deal with Covid, they had to deal with, with Ukraine. Okay, massive problems for any government. And, and, you know, you had to handle it. It was very difficult and challenging for Boris at the time, uh, for the government. So, so there was a public give them the benefit of the doubt mentality. We then had Partygate, where essentially people, there was an erosion of trust, but Boris failed to apologise properly. Had he apologised, it may have been a slightly different outcome. Uh, we then had three months of an internal leadership squabble but we should have been focused on the big issues facing the country. And then we had that disastrous mini-budget in the Liz uh, Trust Premiership. All of those things, and now you have these trivial little things about people really showing complete disdain for their responsibilities. So, as I say, it's very important to reflect on this. I'm mostly talking to people around the community in the last few days. There's a, you lose your reputation for competence. That's lethal for a government. But then you become a bit a laughing stock. People start laughing, then you really are in big trouble. And it seems to me the Conservative Party problem is, is there any way back from this in terms of the next general election? John Major, 1997, when Tony Blair got his landslide victory, actually John Major and Ken Clark had stabilised the economy and things were being turned around. But people remembered Black Wednesday. Yeah, they remembered it and the consequences for interest rates, the consequences for mortgage rates. They never, ever were able to recover from that. And of course, Tony Blair was a very attractive political uh, figure. Um, so th th that is the big question of the Conservative Party. However well Rishi Sunak does, and I think there's a lot of goodwill to him. I think he understands the economy better than his predecessors. Uh, and I think people think he is somebody overall who tries to do the right thing, even though he's made some strange decisions in terms of cabinet choices. We might come on to that later. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, comp losing your reputation for competence, then becoming a laughing stock, that's really what the Mark Han Hancock story, and self-indulgence. This sense of arrogance and being out of touch. People hate it. When you're struggling and battling, you can't pay your bills. You're worried about your kids' future. You're worried about your mortgages. And you've got these elite, people in the elite who think they can do what they want going on these TV programmes. It really irritates people. Um, what do you think? Same opinion. Um, to, to, to a degree, the, uh, the answer to your actual question is yes, you should be suspended. Um, there's actually precedent for this. Nadine Doris did this, I can't remember the year, but a few years ago she did exactly the same, she went in the jungle, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, she had the withdrawn, she ended up in the cabinet later on, but that's another story. So I think it is absolutely right, and I think he knew that and he expected that. 
Um, although that said, there's plenty of MPs, I won't mention names, who may not go into the jungle, but are seem to be taking a week off here, a couple of weeks off there, uh, and nothing happens to them. But presumably they arrange it with the whips, and you know it's not as high profile. And of course, these sort of programmes, you tend to make a fool of yourself. That's the whole idea. Let, let me just expand a little bit on that. Um, Ivan and I are both football fans. In fact, we often say... His politics is red, my politics is blue, his team is blue, my team is red. So you get the idea. It's what Ivan said about becoming a laughingstock, and I, I'm not going to comment on whether the current government is a laughingstock or not. You have to remember I'm an approved parliamentary candidate. You have to watch what I'd say. Um, I've come through the other side. So I'm not going to talk about the present government, but in general, he is, Ivan is absolutely right. Once you become a laughingstock, that's the end. Um, it's very similar in football, with a football manager. You know, you can be criticised and you get through it. Once you become a laughingstock, once you go to an away ground and they're all singing, you'll, you'll be sacked in the morning and all the rest of it, right? Uh, that's when it becomes... It doesn't happen on Shabbos morning, you're sure. It doesn't But once that happens, and once... You know, you, 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 you see the interviews on Match of the Day and they're, they're rambling and it's almost embarrassing. Then you know they, they can't survive. So Ivan is absolutely right. Once you become a laughing stock, there's no way back. Incidentally, I know I said I won't comment on this government and I will not comment on the current situation. There is a lot of difference between the situation now and the situation in 1997. Ivan is right. Um, the Conservatives did stabilise the economy, but people didn't forget Black Wednesday. However, Sir Keir Starmer is not Sir Tony Blair. Tony Blair was a charismatic leader with, uh, with, with, with members such as Ivan. I don't think, I, I speak to people, and yes, I'm not going to pretend they're not you know, upset with what's going on currently with the government, but there isn't a lot of love for the current Labour Party and Sir Keir Starmer. He may well win, but he'll almost win it by default, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So that means if Rishi Sunak gets things right, he's still got a chance because there's over two years, you know, till the next election. And anybody who thinks there's going to be an election anytime soon is living in town of Cuckoo Land because there's an old saying, Turkeys don't vote for Hanukkah or something like that. <laughs> okay, so brilliant. Let's move on to the next question. Gavin Williamson, the former Secretary of Education was reported for bullying and intimidation by sending angry messages complaining that he wasn't invited for the Queen's funeral, blaming on political reasons. Should he be sacked for that? Well, the first thing is that um, it shows you a level of arrogance that they're fighting over who should be at the Queen's funeral. That, again, reinforces this notion of what are they doing? What matters to them? What's important to them? Okay? So fighting, over the, the Queen was this massively respected figure, as we now know, the amazing, emotional, overwhelming reaction to her passing said it all. To then be squabbling over whether you've got a ticket, whether you haven't got a ticket, that also shows a level of self-indulgence. Again, perceived in the Conservative Party as problematic. That, that, that's one point. Yeah. The second point is this. When Rishi Sunak announced what he was going to stand for, that was differentiating himself from Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. He used the word integrity along with two or three other words. And his big problem is that, of course, the press then focused on Suella Braverman and what happened in terms of her period at the Home Office previously, uh, but then they focus on this. Uh, and they say, well, hold on a minute. You said that you were going to create a government um, and lead on, uh, from an integrity point of view. Yeah, well, you've allowed this man to join your government. Now, now I would say that Gavin Williamson, like anybody else, des deserves a fair process, OK? He said these things. Uh, they're out in the public domain. We don't really know the context. We don't know what she said to him. So he does deserve a fair process, and he, we, he does deserve some, some level of fairness in, in terms of the outcome. Can read the for you? Yeah, OK. But the, the point is that once Rishi Sunak said integrity was going to be at the core of the way that he ran his government, that the press were inevitably going to focus on Suella Bremerman, and, and now they're going to focus on Gavin Williamson. He knew about the Gavin Williamson stuff. Upon the day he got elected or something, he did get told about that. Yeah, he knew about the Gavin Williamson stuff. And what he could have said to him is, look, Gavin, I want you in my government, OK? There's this hanging over you. Let's get this out of the way. Once a decision's been taken, I'll make a considered judgment at that point, and I'm sure there'll be a future for you. Because also, just because somebody makes a mistake, you shouldn't be banned forever from serving uh, in, in, in government or in positions of authority. You know, that, that's just ridiculous. Uh, but um, his problem, as I say, the press will... will, will it's John Major 
uh, used the term back to basics when he was Prime Minister, back to basics. Uh, and of course, what the press then did is they focused mercilessly on sleaze, a story after sleaze, story after sleaze, story. So this is the difficulty. He knew, Rishi Sunak, um, in advance that Gavin Williamson was facing this accusation. So instead of putting it on hold, the appointment to the government, he chose to go ahead with it. And that's where he's in difficulties. So he should have released it more than that. He should have. In my opinion, he should not have appointed to his government until yeah. the process, the complaint had been investigated, the decision had been ah, made. Yeah, yeah. And even if Gavin Williamson had been found guilty of a relatively trivial offence, at some point in the future, the Prime Minister could have said, look, he's apologised, he shouldn't have done it, and I still would like him in my government. OK. But he knew about this. It's an unresolved complaint. It's a complaint from a senior colleague, not from some, you know, without any foundation. We've seen some of the messages. So it would have been better if he wouldn't have appointed him. Again, I'm not going to do the job of the Prime Minister and the Chief Whip. If the Prime Minister wants me to become the Chief Whip, that's, that's fine. But I'm not going to do that. I don't know the exact circumstances. I know we've seen certain things. Uh, but I don't know the exact circumstances. I certainly don't know the exact context. What I do know is that was a very turbulent period where all sorts of things were kicking off, particularly that last Wednesday, I think it was, of the vote on fracking and, you know. So I'm not going to sit in judgment. I'm really not because I, I think, as Ivan says, there are due processes and, and, you know, I'll, I'll support the Prime Minister on, on his views on that. I, I'm not, I'm certainly not going to condone bullying or anything like that, but I, I just don't know enough about the facts to, to, to make it. It's an edifying squabbling yeah. over tickets to the Queen's funeral. I think for me, what this exposes quite often and frequently, increasingly, is this arrogance, this out of touch. That's the problem for the Conservative Party, more than these individual trivial issues. It's a collection of issues that starts to cause people to ask fundamental questions. I mean, that's the problem. No, I, I agree. I mean, I was advised to the Queen's funeral. I that, that didn't start swelling with people. But Adam is right. For example, somebody gets divorced. Uh, or or the, start, the relationship starts to break down. Um, just for argument's sake, to take a silly example, say the lady makes toast for her husband or a partner or whatever, and she burns the toast. Now, if the relationship's good, you just say, oh, come on, can't you make toast? You, make, you, you just make light of it. But if the relationship is bad, then, you know, that can be the final story. You can't even make toast. Do you see what I'm saying? It, so it is, as Aaron says, a series of, Little things, but because sometimes there are bigger issues, the little things can be magnified. And it's not held by the press, I have to say, who, you know, who love these things and magnify them beyond all proportion. But anyway. Well, what should have, what should have Rishi done? What should have been what Anne said? <clears throat> well, yeah, again, I'm not going, I'm not going to tell the Prime Minister what to do. I, I, I really don't know enough about the, you know, about the circumstances to do that. So, you know, he, he's got to take that decision and then he's got to take the, the consequences of his decision. So I'm not, I'm not going to advise him what to do and I'm certainly not going to advise him retrospectively. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Brendan, let's move on to the next question. RCN, the UK's, the UK's nurses union, has sent out a vote to all nurses asking if they want to take a strike and it's to get a high wage and it seems like it is going to happen. It seems very likely. What should be done if the nurses decide to go on strike? Well, I think the first thing to say is that nurses do an absolutely remarkable job on the front line of our NHS, which is under you know, unprecedented pressure. I was with my own dad in A&E for 27 hours recently before we got a bed for him, and about 12 or 13 hours before we saw a specialist doctor who really not knew what to do about his condition. And the reason for that was when we arrived at A&E, there were 104 patients there, North Manchester General, before us waiting to be seen. So the tremendous pressure that these people are under is the first thing to say. And we've got this difficult situation where you find it very hard to get an appointment with a GP. Yeah. Uh, that, of course, forces more and more people into the hospital system, which is a bit, what the government says we're trying to avoid, by the way, the opposite that we're supposed to be achieving. Uh, and this is putting tremendous pressure on the frontline staff. Uh, do we pay uh, nurses enough? No, we don't, uh, compared to many others. Uh, do I have sympathy with them? I have a lot of sympathy with them. Do I think strike action should be avoided at all costs? Certainly in most cases. But sometimes groups of workers have no choice. Do you think they should? I hope that they don't strike. I genuinely hope not. And I hope that the management of the NHS and government ministers, more importantly, uh, find the resources to treat them fairly. Look, everybody is going to go through pain. The problem with Liz Truss was she promised you all you could have sweeties. 
as many sweeties as you wanted. We could have tax cuts, uh, you know, and everything would be wonderful. It's just not true. We have to get real. There is no good or easy way out of the crisis that we now, now face. And everybody's going to some extent have to feel the pain. But let's be clear. People on low incomes, frontline public service workers, should be protected as much as we can, right? And those who have the most should bear the greatest burden. I don't, I don't apologise for saying that, and I don't think that's, by the way, a Labour thing to say. I think decent, compassionate Conservatives agree with that. Question Time panel, Stuart Rose, the head of, former head of Marks and Spencers, was saying exactly the same thing only uh, a few days ago. So, look, of course, everything should be done to reduce, uh, to, to ensure that nurses don't uh, go on strike. Uh, it's likely that nurses are doing everything they can to apply maximum pressure to highlight the pressure that they're under and their cost of living, particular cost of living challenges. The government, uh, working with the managers, should do everything they can to avoid the strikes. Uh, I hope that there won't be strikes by nurses in our country. I think it would be a disaster. Yeah, look, again, uh, I also pay tribute to the wonderful work nurses do, not only you know during COVID, but uh, before and after. They're very much on the front line. I was only speaking yesterday to Tombstone Consecration, is where I often meet people, um, to somebody who actually is a head of a local uh, A&E department, and he was telling me the terrible problems they have, and I know also some examples of my own family. Um, so there's no doubt that, you know, we don't call the nurses angels for nothing, and we didn't clap them during COVID for nothing. That said, I certainly am, generally speaking, against strikes. I'm not saying there's never, ever justification for a strike, but I would urge the nurses to think again. Um, yes, I would always urge the government and the employers to, to get around the table. I don't think there's any harm in, in talking. But look, if inflation is 10 11%, you can't give people a 10 11% pay rise. I understand if you don't, they're taking a cut. I do understand that. But if you give them the 10 or 11%, even if I, as Ivan says, you, you know, you tax the rich and, and make them pay, but the ten or eleven percent. Didn't say that. Said everybody should take the fair. Everybody should take the fair. Fair burden. Fair burden. Those who have the most should pay the most. Right. Didn't say you should tax the rich as a matter of virtue. Okay. Right. That's not what I believe. But I think that in these in this climate, right. those who have the most should contribute the most. Right. I'm not, I'm not so disagreeing with that, but you are going to fuel even more inflation if you give everybody ten or eleven percent. Uh, then all that's going to happen is inflation is going to jump up to 15%. So really, I, I, I would urge them to think again, to think very carefully. I know the government is considering making certain sections... Are you saying that the government um, shouldn't really give them a pay rise if, if, if they give them too much? Or, or now, I'm not saying you shouldn't give them a pay rise. Yeah. My own wife is a teacher. Uh, they're similar to nurses, or in similar sort of pay. Yeah. So I have a you know, vested interest in it. Uh, of course we want pay rises... Uh, although some of the other measures that the government are taking with cost of living and energy um, help in different ways and in ways which perhaps don't lead to inflation in the way that a price, that, that, that a wage you know, rise would do. And let me just say, I've mentioned Liz Truss. I'm going to again lay my cards on the table here. I voted for Liz Truss. Um, I've literally got the T-shirt, actually. Gave them out free at Hustings. I've literally got the T-shirt. Might be worth something in a few years. You never know. I voted for her. I supported her. I was actually part of her, not not a major campaign team, but I was on her supporters' WhatsApp groups. And I went to some of her meetings, etc. Um, and I, I did agree with the thrust of her argument that we need growth. We've had... 12 years where there's been very little growth, and I know well, before, yeah, before I even says that, and uh, New Ivan was going to say that, and he's not wrong. But the fact is, I mean, truth is, if you listen to the, to Liz Truss and Rishi during the campaign, you would have thought, you know, we're talking about a completely different party here, um, and I accept that, and I think the leadership campaign did do a lot of damage internally to the Conservatives. Uh, but I supported the general thrust that we do need growth. Unfortunately, the way it was done, you know, I think the mini-budget was four days after, the, or three days after the Queen's funeral, whatever. Um, and actually, the 5% cut in the higher rate of tax is very, very little. 
and it only added a small amount of three billion, whatever it was, to the to the national debt. But it was the perception, and it was a market reaction. Yeah, it was a market reaction. And by the way, I think these days uh, we talk of the, the prime minister and who's in power and the chancellor. Actually, I think the markets actually around the country. Uh, it's almost a sad state of affairs, but that's mm. the way it is. Um, and I even saw... Conservative the, parties always believe that. Yeah, well, yes, I know. Um, but I even read recently somewhere that said even Sakir Starmer um, will have to be wary of the market. So even of course, be every prime minister. Every yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, ho- the whole thing here that's absolutely extraordinary is that the Conservative Party, through its history, has claimed to understand the markets and to be able to manage the economy competently and, and claim that the Labour Party is una, in, in able, unable to do this. So what she's done is she's destroyed the reputation the Conservative Party had. Its whole brand was about understanding the markets, being very careful in terms of the way markets might react to particular sets of policy announcements, but also competent economic management. Uh, and in one fell swoop, in one mini-budget, she destroyed that. But that, that, that's less important than what she did to people's mortgages and what she did to people's confidence about their futures. It was reckless. And you know what's bizarre about this? Rishi Sunak told her this during the leadership election. Uh, and Arnold Sutherland should have supported Rishi Sunak during that leadership. He told the Conservative members the truth yeah. about the pain that would be necessary to get the economy back into balance. And she told them what they wanted to hear. And that's why she didn't deserve to be Prime Minister in the first place, and it's why she deserved to get uh, removed uh, from office. So the idea that you can have you know, everything that you want, uh, tax cuts, uh, all the rest of it, uh, no, no, no pain, uh, growth, absolutely right about growth. And the way we stimulate growth is we have to invest in jobs, we have to invest in modern technology, we have to inv- uh, invest in green technology, as well, where the jobs of the future are. Of course, this is what Starmer's been saying. Now, Rishi Sunak woke up on Sunday morning, it's all over the papers, that's what he believes too. And by the way, I welcome that. So any leader who seeks to lead the country should be talking about growth. Rabbi Saunders is correct about that. Um, but, of course the, uh, you know, it, it's obvious. Yeah. Um, but um, stimulating growth requires the government to work with business. Yeah. And it requires to have targeted investment. We need a lot more investment in the regions. Look, the government's levelling up agenda, which has completely been forgotten in all of this chaos and confusion, right? That's right. You know, we can't have an economy that's purely dependent on London and the southeast of England. We need an economy uh, where you have growth and you have jobs and you have the modern industries and you have investment in technology um, in all the regions of the country. Uh, and that's where we need leadership from the government. In the end, it will come via private sector, it will come via entrepreneurs, via business people. That's where, and, and to some extent, the voluntary sector as well will create the jobs of the future. Um, but you need government leadership, you need government vision. So we all believe in growth. But what was extraordinary was uh, the recklessness. And, and uh, what's even more extraordinary, the arrogance. Rishi Sunak, forget Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak and other economists warn them, if you do this, this will be the consequence. And they ignored them. And then it happened. So Arnold, I'd put the T-shirt away if I were you. <laughs> I wouldn't talk about being on this trust's leadership uh, team. You want to be a parliamentary candidate somewhere. I, I really don't think that was one of your biggest assets going forward, either within the party or with the British people when you face them, hopefully as a parliamentary candidate in the month's end. Yeah, uh, you know, I, mean, I didn't see see it coming. I, I know you're going to say Rishi Sunak did. I didn't see it coming. I was impressed with Liz uh, and her agenda. I didn't realise that, you know, she was going to do so much at, at once and it was going to crash the economy. Were you impressed when you saw how everyone was reacting? Uh, I, 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 was in, I saw Liz several times during the campaign. In fact, I can show you a picture of me with her on my phone. Um, but um, she was quite impressive, and uh, th- there was reasons I didn't vote for Rishi. Uh, I felt he was too arrogant. Um, I also felt he was part of the uh, campaign to get rid of Boris, which a lot of Conservative uh, members were upset about, still are to this day. Um, so, you know, I-, I threw my lot in with Liz, but... Well, the rest. Well, I think had she played her cards differently, she could have made a success of it. Um, I think her problem was obviously the mini budget, but she didn't connect with people. I think this is the other thing: the Conservative Party seems to have lost the plot. They've always been good at being ruthless about holding on to power, and these days you need a leader who can connect with the public. And that was, I think that was part of the problem. Obviously, the, 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 the reckless budget, which tanked people's, made people scared about their pensions and mortgages. But also, 
people felt that there was no emotional connection when they saw her. This is a problem for a modern leader. I'd also say this, this is a much bigger point than the Conservative Party, the Labour Party, Britain. We are living in a world where we face such great challenges, economically, environmentally, environmentally and from a security point of view, yeah. that we need leaders who are willing to tell the public the truth, however difficult that truth is. In right. And that is where I think we... This is the big question for the world going forward. With the challenges that we now face, yeah. we do not have quality leaders anywhere in the world. So let us hope we see leaders emerging in the period ahead in countries all over, not just in this country, who are at least willing to square with people about the scale of the challenge, the choices that need to be made, yeah? Yes, protect uh, people as much as you can, because that, I mean, let's be honest, Rishi uh, Sunak deserves credit for the furloughing scheme during COVID. I never understood why he didn't make a virtue of that during his own leadership campaign, by the way. Conservative thought he was spending vast amounts of state oh, money in the Okay, but, but now there, may, there was abuse. We know there was abuse of the furloughing scheme. But was the principle right at the time? Of course it was right, okay? People forget them, but you shouldn't forget the misery of those two years. So, of course, we want politicians who will protect people. That is important, not important, it's essential. But we also want leaders who will square with people and not treat them like fools. Tell them the truth about the difficult choices, the trade-offs. There's no easy answers, OK? We'll try it. We will do everything we can to protect you. Uh, but this will not be a pain-free uh, period. Uh, and as I say, the same applies across the world. And we need one or two great leaders to emerge. I can't think at the moment of one great leader in the world, with the possible except, exception of Zelensky in Ukraine. In terms of whether you agree with everything he's done or not, the courage that he's showing is quite remarkable. I can't name one other leader I regard as somebody that I would have uh, tremendous respect for. That's shocking. That really is shocking. Yeah, so just moving on to the ne next question, um, as we were discussing just before this, Boris Johnson is scheduled to, or maybe he has done already today, spoken at uh, COP27, and it's obviously overshadowing Rishi Sunak. Is this a sign of disrespect, or what, what do you think? I think it's, it's, it's more of the same from the Conservative Party. It's self-indulgence. Okay. It's ego prevailing. Yeah. What, if, he, if he cared about the interests of his party, okay, forget the country or his passion for the environment, which I don't, I don't doubt or dispute. He seems to have developed this passion for the environment. We should welcome that. Okay, Any leader who understands the scale of the environmental challenge. Okay. But to do this, uh, when his uh, Prime Minister is about to address COP, the, the, this conference, it is another example of self-indulgence. And of course the press love it. And that will be their story. Boris will be the story. Boris overshadowing Rishi yeah, with the story. Rishi, it's even good in the first place. Rishi wasn't going, now he is Boris. going. And then Boris goes and still does this. This is the sign of a government in decay, I'm afraid. It, it, it's so classic. It's happened where ego has become more important than the substance of the issues and unity and putting the party and the country first, the country and the party first in that order. So that, that's the problem with it. Not that Boris has important things to say. By the way, look, Boris Johnson is not gone from British politics. I tell you now, he had 100 nominations. For the, he did have 100 nominations. Uh, he made, why he made the choice not to stand, I think the members would have supported him. He probably made the decision because he realised the Conservatives are going to lose the next election. Let me be blunt. Yeah. I think that was the calculation he made. The people said to him, show you've got still a lot of support in the, in the parliamentary party, but this is not the time to become leader. But in the future, he will be back, because that is Boris. Okay? And I believe that, I don't know if he's back as Prime Minister, but he'll certainly seek to become leader of the Conservative Party again, probably when they go into opposition. And the, as, as Rabbi Saunders hinted, the Conservative members are likely to vote for him. So everything that Boris does in the next few years should be watched through that prism. First of all, he will seek to make lots of money, Okay, to have financial independence, that's inevitable, that's his choice, him and his family, okay. But alongside that, everything he does will be about putting himself in a position where once again the Conservative Party will choose him as their leader and that he, he believes the British people once again at some stage. That's what Boris will do. But he's self-indulgent, it overshadows his own Prime Minister, uh, it puts his own interests before the interests of his, his party, um, but I do believe that he, if he cares about the environment, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. What, what do you think? Well, let me say, firstly, I think when Boris first, first agreed to go and speak at COPS, Rishi had actually said he wasn't going to go. Secondly, I think as a former Prime Minister, he's fully entitled to go, and he's fully entitled to speak. If you haven't so over... what's entitled as well. Well, if you haven't over, overshadow Rishi, that, in some ways, that's Rishi's problem. Yeah, that, that, he knows that, he's doing well, that. you know, th this happened in a funny way 
uh, uh, sorry, in a strange way, when the Queen passed away, um, Boris made an excellent speech in, in the House of Commons, and many said he overshadowed his Trussell speech as Prime Minister. But what should he do? Just, you know, make a speech that, 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 that was pretty mundane? What should he do in the cups? Make a, a mundane speech? He shouldn't go. He doesn't have to do that. Well, I, I think he's entitled to go. I think if he can... Have private meetings. I, th- I think this is so important, um, as Aaron said, the you know the future of the planet, etc., that I think if he feels he can contribute something, and clearly he's got a record of this, then I don't see why he shouldn't go. I think it's too, too important to play politics with. Um, to come to the other part of whether Boris will return... Um, I don't know. I, I, I do agree he had 100 votes. He definitely had 100 votes. I'm absolutely certain he would have won uh, if he had gone to the membership. I'm not sure he thought we're going to lose the next election. I think he thought it's just going to be a nightmare trying to, you know, even fill a cabinet with MPs. Exactly. Yeah. So he couldn't have won the next election on that basis. Well, that, that may be so. Uh, he may well come back. I, I once said to Boris, uh, I said, I'm I said, uh, Prime Minister, I'm comparing you to Joshua. He said, really? He said, why is that? How's that? I said, because um, Moses got the people to the brink of the promised land but couldn't get them over. But Joshua took them over to the promised land. I said, Theresa May took us to the brink of Brexit, but you got us over the line. And he was thrilled with that. In fact, he even told me a little ditty he learned in Eton, um, which went something like this. Um, uh, Joshua, Caleb, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh were the only two spies who were allowed in the land of, the milk, of milk and honey. <laughs> Interesting. Um, now I'm comparing him to another biblical character, Yiftoch, Yiftoch Agiladi, Jephthah. If you look at the book of Judges, Jephthah was rejected by the people, as the reason was because he was illegitimate, so it's a little bit different, but he was rejected, they didn't want him. Eventually, when they went to war with the Ammonites, they realised there's only one man that can actually win this war, and that's Jephthah. They went back at crawling on the hands and knees and became the leader. That could still happen to Boris. It could. I'm not saying it definitely will. A lot depends on whether he wants it. A lot depends on the next election. But I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, even Trump seems to be uh, looking for a comeback. And that's actually our next question. Let's go into it now. Um, Trump says he said this week that he's very, very likely to do it again. Do you think he's going to run? And if yes, will he win? I think he's a very, very difficult question. He'll, he'll, he'll absolutely run. Yeah. Um, absolutely. He's an, he's an incredibly divisive figure. So the Republican Party will be concerned that depending on the Democratic candidate, we don't know whether it would be Biden, of course, or whether it would be somebody else, um, that he will uh, give them a major uh, problem. That's uh, very, very likely. Uh, he, he will win. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't, I don't think he is likely. He's so divisive. I think it depends to some extent on the Democratic Party's choice. Yeah. If they choose Joe Biden again, we can see that in the polls at the moment he's incredibly unpopular. It is mid-term, that can turn around. I think it's probably a likely. Um, so, uh, yes, it is feasible to see a set of circumstances where Trump would become President of the United States again. But, of course, uh, what he did uh, in terms of inciting Congress and all of that towards the end of his period in office has turned a lot of people against him who were in the middle about Donald Trump you know, who were not necessarily strongly against him or for him. Um, So it it remains to be seen. Uh, But I think what's happening in the world is that the the public are choosing politicians who have some level of presence, personality, charisma. Whether they love them or hate them, they would rather have uh, people such as that than grey figures who don't stand for anything, who don't have much definition. So this is where the, the people like Trump score. Yeah. Uh, but again, my, one of my main criticisms is, even if I disagree with some of his policies, okay, I agree with some of his policies as well, by the way, particularly in relation to foreign affairs. Okay, Trump got many things foreign affairs right. Right. It's this, well, your very first question, using language which inflames and incites and divides people when you are in a position of power is extremely wrong and dangerous and damaging. And that will be my major criticism. Of course I don't agree with some of his policies or some of his ideology. Okay, But that's my predominant criticism of it. That when you hold such a position of influence and power in the world, to use language which divides, inflames, incites, in itself, is wrong. Whether you, and by the way, liberals, people on the left, are every bit as capable of doing that as people on the right. 
Okay, some of my friends would pretend that's not the case, but they are in certain parts of the world, in certain countries. I don't think Starmer can be accused of that, Keir Starmer, but others, other, other leaders on the left can uh, around the world. And so it's not a left-right point, actually. Okay? Yeah. Um, so that would be my, if I'm honest, that would be my concern. On the one hand, uh, I think he got uh, many issues to do with foreign policy absolutely spot on uh, in terms of the threats facing the world at the moment. Um, and, and that's very, very important. I think his divisiveness, his use of inflammatory language, his incitement, that in itself is extremely concerning. Yeah, um, interestingly, I've got a son who's in Florida, uh, and I discuss politics with him all the time. Uh, Five-hour time distance is great because it means I can speak at one o'clock in the morning without worrying about my phone ringing or whatever. Um, and um, Trump is currently in Florida, he's got a pad there. More than a pad. Um, and I'll make a couple of predictions. Um, the Democrat Party. Actually, that's better than uh, your previous prediction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Democratic Party will get trounced tomorrow in the American election. You think that's true? I think it's true. I think they, they could well lose both houses uh, and governorships, etc. My next prediction is that Biden will not run for the next election. Um, I'm not saying he will be deselected, but there's other ways of persuading people, you know, whether he'll go of his own accord or the men in grey suits, as we see in this country, the, the American equivalent of Sir Graham Brady, uh, will tap him on his shoulder and say, look, Joe, you know, it's time to go, you'll be remembered in history, but that's it. Um, so I, I don't actually think he will be facing Biden, so it will be a wholly different yeah. opposition. I do think Trump will run, and he's got a lot of support. And like Ivan, I think he's done some fantastic things in foreign affairs to do with the Middle East, the Abram Accords. Yeah. Um, uh, he said recently, he said he's the only president in the 20th century, including the Republican president, uh, President Bush, he's the only president under whose watch Putin did not invade one inch of a foreign country. And you know, there is something in that. But yes, of course, I don't agree with all the things he's done, and I certainly don't agree with all the things he's said. So do you think he would win? That's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, I think there's a possibility he could win. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think, as I said, if Biden does uh, run again, I think he will win. If he doesn't, then he still could win, and a lot depends who, you know, who, who the Democratic Party put up. Um, so he could still win, but then obviously it, you know, it isn't quite as likely. But, you know, we don't know. It's still a couple of years yet till the next election. He might, you know, who knows? He's, he's not a young man. Anything can happen yeah, between now and then. So, you know... Still he'll definitely still be interested. Oh, he'll still be interested. What yeah. about Ron DeSantis? He seems like he would be a very good uh, a very good choice to also run. Do you know Ron DeSantis? I know who he is. Uh, I don't know much about him, if I'm honest with you. He seems, like, uh, he seems like a very popular candidate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forward, no, he is. I, I think there are elements of the Republican Party, obviously, were very, very uh, worried. I, I think the rabbi's right. I think there's no question he'll run. Yeah. Uh, it does depend on who the Democratic candidate is and, of course, what happens in terms of world events. I think the rabbi's right to highlight the Abraham Accords. I think they're a tremendous achievement, by the way. I, I think uh, it's really revolutionising the Middle East and Israel's relations with neighbouring countries. We should very much welcome that. Uh, and at the moment, you know, we've got the Iran threat coming down around the corner and we've got to be extremely concerned about it. The world is focused on Ukraine. Believe me, um, the world equally needs to be focusing on what's happening. Let's hope that the Iranian re regime is removed internally by the people of Iran. That would be the ideal solution for all of us. If that's not the case, there is absolutely no option available but to take military action at the point the Iranians are about to get a nuclear uh, capacity. There's no option. And unfortunately, it looks to me as always usual, it would be left to the Israelis. But the world has to get real. This is the threat that will cause potentially the most trouble for the world. Um, well, that's fine. Really. So um, the next question is: Well, can I just say I agree what what Alan said about the, the Iranians removing, you know, their leaders on their own, and I'd also add Putin into that equation. I hope that Putin will be removed by the uh, by Russian. the Russian people. But can we just come back to Ron DeSantis? He's the governor of Florida. Yeah, right? he's extremely popular um, with that. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I told you my son lives in Florida. Currently, I think today, Ron DeSantis is actually campaigning with President Trump in Florida. Trump just said the other day that he, he wants uh, everyone to vote for him. 
Yeah, absolutely. He's almost crowned, you know, he's, he's spoken with, in glowing terms of him. So yes, Ron DeSantis, and by the way, let me tell you something about Ron DeSantis. I've not met him at Stonehouse. Um, he, we were talking about the lockdown and furlough. I, I agree, something had to be done. I do think looking back, I think we did too much for too long. Um, there were reasons for that. They probably wanted to carry even further for longer, but I don't want to play politics with this. I do think I know Ivan is very involved in you know in mental health um, charities and, and the third sector. Um, we've seen a tremendous, and I've seen it myself. I've seen people that I've always known as strong and, and so on, and, and they've crumbled during furlough. Not just children, adults as well. Um, and of course, we're, we're, we're paying the price. Tremendous the mental health legacy as a result of Quite right. There's also an economic legacy, there's the, the NHS that we've been talking about. So I do think Florida is a very, very interesting, um, a, a very interesting example. They didn't lock down at all. Well, not, not at all, but they had, hardly had any lockdown. And do you know what? They were no worse than any other state in America and even better than some states. And incidentally, Florida has another thing going for it. It has no state taxes. I think it's the only state that has no state taxes. And they are very, very successful. So if one runs, do you think? I think, I would certainly support one Santos. Uh, but yeah, we don't know who will be running again. But I think I, I have a lot of time for Ron DeSantis. Again, from talking to my son, um, and he, he he's got. Let's put it this way: Ron DeSantis has got the you know the good things that we're talking about. Ronald Trump, Donald Trump, but without the baggage. So I think he'd be a very good choice, and he'd have a very good chance of winning. Let's move on to the next question. Um, so talk about it's really news. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu won to be Prime Minister again. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Um, a remarkable comeback, of course. I mean, Bibi is never to be written Boris off. Boris Johnson. Uh, <laughs> prediction about Boris Johnson. I think you have to respect the decision of the Israeli people. I've heard a lot of people on the left who are very, very uh, angry about this, but it's democracy. We have to respect the result. Uh, I think that... Um, Obviously, uh, the new Prime Minister, Bibi, um, has got tremendous experience. The scale of the challenge for Israel is great. Not only have they got the cost of living crisis the rest of the world faces, the instability of the new relationship between Iran and Russia. Let's not forget that Iran's support for Russia and Ukraine and what that means for the relationship between the two countries. Can uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu do something to break that up? Very important because of his relationship with Putin, potentially. Um, uh, then you've got the uh, Abraham uh, Accords. Of course, the big concern that people have is the potential coalition partners for Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, and I think that where people are concerned is that we as Jews uh, deplore and abhor racism of any kind. That must include all people and all minorities. Uh, some of the comments that have been made by these potential coalition partners in the past are frankly scandalous. They're outrageous. Um, so let's see what happens during the course of these negotiations over the next few weeks in terms of how much they demand, what Prime Minister Netanyahu is willing to concede to them. Uh, but, you know, we have to have a, a Jewish state which is not only Jewish in terms of standing up for our interests, protecting our security, it's also got to reflect our values and our ethos as well. Uh, and the way we treat our, the minorities... Uh, by the way, this is not a debate about land, giving land away, OK? There's no prospect of any such thing happening at the moment. The Palestinians are completely divided. You've got Fatah, who are corrupt, running the West Bank. You've got Hamas, who are a terrorist organisation, running uh, Gaza. So this isn't about land, giving land away or land for peace, but treating minorities within Israel um, with respect um, and not inciting again and causing divisions is incredibly important and consistent with our values and our ethos. And the Torah, by the way, I think Rabbi Saunders uh, would confirm that in terms of where we're supposed to treat strangers. Uh, and, and this isn't underestimating the security threat, OK? Um, but that is the concern. The coalition partners, what price will they demand and how will they uh, behave? Does he have coalition partners to win? Do you need coalition partners? To well, when, when, when the media report that he has 64 or 65, they include oh, okay. the potential so partners in the right-wing bloc, yes. Yeah. Uh, of course, there is the, 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 the possibility that Benny Gantz uh, will decide in the end to join the government, despite his long-standing uh, opposition to Netanyahu and the difficulties between the two men, to give the government a more moderate flavour. That is possible. That may happen, depending on what these other parties demand for the price of a coalition. 
I actually don't think Netanyahu will give them any, everything that they want, or, you know, or anything that they want, which at the moment they might be in the mindset of thinking they'll get whatever they want because he needs us. I don't think he will do that. So it's going to be a very interesting phase, but let's keep our eye on the ball. The Iran problem is not going away and it's getting nearer and nearer and nearer. Uh, and the minute that the Israeli leadership believes Iran has decided, the regime, to accelerate their nuclear program, there will be no option but to take action to stop that happening. And if the Iranian people don't overthrow the regime, there is an inevitability about the use of a military option. Now, that needs to be done with the widest possible coalition of international support. And I would say to any leader in the world uh, listening to this, I'm sure many will be listening to you, Ellie, uh, you know, be on the right side of this argument. And this is, a, this is also a message to the liberal left. If Iran were to develop a nuclear capacity, it would be a disaster not just for Israel, but for the stability of the Middle East and the, wor- and the world. It would be a disaster for the moderate Arab states in the Gulf, which is one of the reasons, not the only reason, they're forming alliances with Israel right now. Uh, so yes, this is about Israel's security. I don't apologise uh, for saying that the only Jewish state in the world needs an insurance policy uh, and deserves the world's protection, okay? Uh, but this is also about the stability of the Middle East and the world. Uh, and I'm afraid that the nuclear deal that was being proposed surely is off the table now. The idea you can sit down and do a deal with these people when they're treating their own people in the way they are and they're supporting Russia and Ukraine has to be a complete nonsense. So the biggest single challenge facing uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is the uh, threat of Iran. And of course, alongside that is the cost of living crisis facing many Israelis. I mean, we talk about the cost of living crisis in this country. Uh, there's, a, there's an equal challenge uh, in Israel. Israel presents itself quite rightly as this great success story. It is. It's a high-tech, fantastic economic uh, story and social story in many ways. But it also has a lot of hidden poverty and it has a lot of inequality and particularly young people are finding it difficult to cope with their everyday living costs and standard living. So those are the big challenges facing the new government in Israel. The important thing is political stability for a significant period of time. Having elections every 10 minutes is a disaster. So the interesting question will be, will Prime Minister Netanyahu be able to form a coalition that is responsible, is balanced, and can last a reasonable length of time to face these big challenges? Well, it's no secret that I would prefer... Bibi to uh, an irreligious left-wing sort of coalition. As Ivan says, the question is not Bibi so much. And you know, I know all the, you know the fraud charges. I'm not too worried about that. Though to some extent, they're a distraction. Uh, I don't know whether he's guilty, or not guilty, uh, any more than anyone else. Uh, but I think that's a distraction. He's now been re-elected. Let him get on with it. Of course, I'm worried about some of the you know, Ben Gavir and, and so on, these fringe parties. Um, but like Ivan, I don't think they will do too much damage. Firstly, they are all, uh, they're falling over themselves to distance themselves from themselves, from their own comments years ago. Um, so I don't think, I, I don't think, that, as Ivan said, I don't think that Netanyahu will give them too much power. He'll, you know, relegate them, if you like, to the religious ministries, the home the home, the home uh, office, or whatever they call it there. Uh, I don't think they'll be allowed anywhere near foreign affairs and, and, and so on, anything to do with, you know, Arabs or the administering the, the, the territories. Um, it's interesting that, for example, very often in history, particularly in Israel, it's been right-wing governments that actually make peace. So, for example, the, the Camp David Accords, in 1977, was made by Menachem Begin, uh, who was a right-wing minister, because he could take the people with him. It's not always the case that the left-wingers make peace. And let me tell you, I support in principle a two-state solution, and I support in principle the concept of, of land for peace. I even supported um, giving back Gaza in was it 2006, yeah. I think. Um, but that didn't go well. So, like, let's trust us, Premiership, if I can compare it to that, uh, because no one predicted what would happen in Gaza with Hamas. Um, we can't have a two state solution. Well, for a start, it would have to be a three state solution yeah. because there's no way Hamas. It's not realistic right now. It's completely not realistic whatsoever. At the moment. At the moment. And in the long term, um, you could argue that it's the only way forward. I mean, I know as religious Jews, we believe ultimately the Mashiach, Messiah will come and there'll be peace on the earth. But you have to make plans for, you know, f- f- till then. And probably the long term, 
there will have to be some sort of solution. And by the way, the Abraham Accords will help towards this because the Palestinians are losing support within the Arab world. A lot of the signatories to the Abraham Accord think that Palestinians, you know, should 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 uh, really, you know, come on board as well, and they they're embarrassed by the Palestinian situation. They feel they're being held back. In terms of Iran, I was 100% right. It, it really, the, there is no room for, for movement there at all. Bibi will be strong on that. I can tell you, I, I can't say too much, um, but I spoke to somebody who was really involved at the heart of the original agreement. Can't name names for obvious reasons. But that person told me, in a you know, in roundabout ways, that actually, you know, they were having second thoughts. They can't say this publicly. I can't name them publicly. But they were having second thoughts as whether it was the correct thing to do. I think it's obsolete. I think we should, you know, forget it. It was a bad deal. Um, and we, we, yeah, military option may be the only option if the people in Iran. I mean, at the moment, there's tremendous protest going on. We hope that the people of Iran will remove yeah. that regime. This would be the, ultimately the best. Uh, solution. I was in Israel recently. I spoke to a top strategic political analyst that worked for the um, IDF for 40 years, advised prime ministers. The one thing he said about the Palestinian situation is this. Uh, no prospect of two-state solution. But he did say that uh, wh whether you like Abbas or not, it's very difficult to like him when he's a Holocaust denier, if I'm frank with you. He doesn't believe in the use of terrorism. And it's therefore very important whoever runs Israel does cooperate with him on security matters and bolsters him because at the end of the day he doesn't believe in the use of violence and there, there, the, the others do and therefore it's very very important that, that Prime Minister Netanyahu reaches out and engages with the Palestinians this is not about uh, a land for peace deal because that is not realistic with Hamas running Gaza uh, and Fatah running uh, the West Bank but it is important to give the ordinary Palestinian people a sense of hope that's the first thing I would say. And the second thing, it's an important, very important to cooperate with Abbas on security to prevent the suicide bombings and the terrorist attacks. Can I say, I do agree with you, Ivan, but yes, he, he, it's, he doesn't, you know, arrange terrorist attacks, but he does have a policy of pay to slay. So, you know, he's happy to have terrorism by proxy. Um, if, if somebody commits a terrorist act, he will pay them or their family uh, for doing so. Uh, the Palestinians give out sweets when... You well, know, that should be out. All of that should be banished. Right, but, but this is still under Abbas's watch. And also, uh, he, um, he not only has the pay to slay, but in the schools, as you know... In Simon, yeah. In Simon, you know, so he, he, I'm mean, right. He it's not about my opinion. This is about a top, top yeah. Israeli yeah. security but, uh, person who yeah. served for 40 years. Right. It's not about my opinion. It's no. very important. This. I, I'm not sitting in an armchair in press which telling the guy who's run, you know, advised successive Israeli ministers. What he's saying is, we do not like him. We do not have to like him. We should not like him. Right? But he doesn't believe in the use of violence, terrorism, to, to achieve their objectives. And therefore, if you don't bolster him, you will get far worse. Uh, coming round well, before well, that, that is the concern so what I'm saying is any Israeli Prime Minister needs to at least cooperate with him and give him some sense of working together on security issues that's all I'm saying well I remember Ted Heath remember him Ted Heath once said something along the lines and others have said this you can't negotiate with your friends you have to negotiate with your enemies and not only do you have to negotiate with your enemies and this, this definitely Ted Heath said you have to let your enemy come out of the negotiations claiming victory of sorts. Otherwise, there's no point. So you have to let them say, you know, again, a bit like, you know, listening to a manager interviewed on Match of the Day, they were beaten 4-0, you know, uh, and he says, well, you know what, they didn't score in the second half, and I think we, you know, we overran them. Remember David Lloyd, the cricketer, yeah. once uh, said that we... We hammered them, or words to that effect, when they were absolutely beaten by innings or whatever. So, yeah, yeah I agree. We, we do have to talk. Can to I ask you. a issue a challenge to Rabbi Saunders? Sure. Can you put pressure on your colleagues at the highest level of the Conservative Party to introduce legislation in the House of Commons to outlaw the use of British government money to support the payment of Palestinian terrorists? The Americans introduced legislation uh, through the, the two houses that the President signed, which may be unlawful for American government money to be used 
for the schemes that you referred to earlier, which is either paying uh, terrorists or paying prisoners while they're in prison for terrorist acts. Uh, So so the use of government money cannot be used in that way. Will Rabbi Saunders seek to influence government business? I think it would be a great campaign to introduce legislation to Parliament to outlaw the use of of, of UK aid to pay, as you say, for Palestinian terrorists. I'm certainly happy to do that. I know James Cleverly very well. It would Um, be a great thing for you to do. Yeah, absolutely. What what the standard answer to this, because it's often raised in Parliament and and by yourself in the past as well, the standard answer is, oh, we don't believe that our money is being used for that. Our money goes to... Welfare normally goes to education. They don't know that. They don't know that. No, but I'm just saying that is the standard. I agree with that. Successive governments have given that answer. The Americans, I met the gentleman in America recently who um, encouraged the Israelis to go down this route of actually passing a law in the Knesset, um, which meant that no um, Israeli money can be used in that way. Um, uh, sorry, I think it is, it's no, no American money can be used in that way, not Israeli money, that's, that's obvious. No American federal money can be used in that way. I think we should have the same uh, laws in this country. Uh, Rabbi Saunders is right. The fact that they use some, some money uh, to pay uh, uh, convicted uh, terrorists, to encourage people to commit acts of terrorism, to reward terrorism, I'm totally against that. Um, and therefore, I think uh, if, if legislation could be uh, along the lines exactly the same as the, the American legislation, which prevents American federal money being used in that way. And by the way, what it means is that there is complete transparency and accountability about how American money is spent in the Palestinian Authority. So this is what it forces you to do. Uh, you know, and, I, and I believe that we should be we doing everything we can to help ordinary Palestinians. When I hear Jewish people say we should cut their money, we should cut their money, I, I really get quite concerned about that because there's a humanitarian cost right? but we have to make sure the money is being used for, for, for health care for humanitarian purposes supporting ordinary people not to bolster or encourage or incite terrorism yeah, but there is uh, you know in the, the laws of Shabbos there's something called Katie Shaney where you pour hot water into another thing there is a sort of Katie Shaney situation here whereby you can give money and I think that's what the government sort of contends our money is going to education and welfare, but the fact that we're supporting education and welfare then frees up, like a Katie Shaney a second yeah. ago, then frees up their own money to be used for terrorist purposes. So you've really got to get to the bottom of this. Uh, but yeah, and I think, by the way, we've also got to persuade the EU, with whom we've lost a bit of influence these days for some reason, um, because they give a very lot of money as well. Um, yeah. So Jews should not campaign to cut aid to Palestinians. I find it really worrying when I see these campaigns. But we should campaign vigorously to ensure there is complete control and transparency so that that money should not be used, as I say, to reward, to incite and to encourage uh, terrorism. Yeah, brilliant. I'm to sort out the schools, as I've mentioned. I think it's so a, you can't have kids being grown up on growing up on, on a, you know an absolute diet of... Hatred. Hatred, yeah. I mean, that's on both sides. Um, Anyway, I think this is a good... Well, you say on both sides. I absolutely guarantee you that Jewish schools do not teach hatred of Arabs at all. And then you quote Golda Meir, who said there'll be peace in Israel when the Arabs learn to love their children more than they hate our children. Well, there are, there are obviously, there's more on the Palestinian side, but uh, uh, statistically wrong. Um, anyway, thanks for coming on. And, uh, thank you for giving us this opportunity. It's been great yes, to like, debate and chat with my good friend Rabbi Saunders. I hope we'll do more of this in the weeks ahead. Thank you for giving us the opportunity, Ellie. Thanks, Ellie. Thank, thank you, thank you, Ellie. Thank you, Ellie.